You cannot worry about things you cannot affect because if you worry about it, then you still get affected by them. So I would say just focus on things and look forward. So don't look back, look forward and look for the next solution. Welcome to the Indianist Podcast, a show about leaders of Indian origin who have overcome challenges and worked with dedication to ultimately achieve success. By telling the stories of the defining milestones in their journeys, we hope to inspire others to learn how they too can succeed in their pursuits. Here's your host, Sanjay Puri. Welcome to the Indianist Podcast. Our show is about talking to leaders of the Indian American community in business, technology, medicine, healthcare, education, politics, etc. I get asked all the time, how come there are so many Indian Americans or people of Indian origin who are in leadership roles in key places, whether it's the CEO of Google, it's the World Bank head, the vice president of the country, etc. And I said, I don't know. But let me talk to some of these leaders and find out what's the secret mojo that they have that could inspire the people who want to be like them, people who want to follow in their footsteps. So for today, we have a very interesting guest who is of Indian origin, of Hungarian origin, and he's an American. He's an expert in fintech. He's an expert in fencing and Many other things, but welcome, Sunil. Sunil Sabrawal to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Sanjay. Honored to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Sunil, why don't you take our listeners to where your story began, where were you born, and a little bit about how your very interesting story evolved. Maybe I start from before I was born. Don't worry, okay. it won't be that long, but it's part of the story. It actually goes back to the geopolitics of the 60s when India, led by Nehru and Gandhi, were part of the non-aligned nations. And my father was going to university in Hungary. He comes from a printing family. This is the Sabarva family, Baldiogard Sabarva is his full name. And Hungary, as part of the Soviet bloc, of course, was in this, let's say, friendship community and welcomed Indian students to study in Budapest, the capital of uh, Hungary. And that's where he met my mom-to-be. They fell in love. And my mom, in, from communist Hungary in the late 60s, mid-60s, actually left for India and New Delhi to become a member of a Punjabi family that had moved down to Delhi. So in a way, the whole story starts there, born in South Extension, New Delhi, to an Indian father and a Hungarian mother. Wow, that's very interesting. And those were the days where India used to be in the non-aligned movement and leading that. So when your mom moved in, you were born in Delhi. How did you come to the States, Sunil? So between India and the States, there is an interim step. And it looks like every nine years, there is a big move because at the age of nine, my mother, my younger brother and myself, we moved to Hungary, I think, for a Hungarian lady in the 70s in India was still not very easy. So she returned home. And when I arrived in Budapest at the age of nine, I finished three years of elementary school in New Delhi at the Frank Anthony School, which so I grew up learning English 
in school, Hindi and Punjabi in the home, as well as Hungarian, of course, from my mom. And to my dad's credit, he had learned Hungarian. So they were actually even able to communicate Hungarian with each other. But then nevertheless, I arrived in Hungary when I was nine and then finished the rest of my elementary school and high school there. At the age of 18, my mom was from a very old, say, aristocratic Hungarian family that never sat well with the communists. So in some way, I thought she felt a desire to get away. And and partly that went to faraway lands of India, came back, tried it again. And again, I think found it that this is not her place to be. So we, together with my brother and her, via Austria, sought political asylum at the U.S. Embassy in Vienna. So I was 18, just finished high school. This was in 83. And at the time, because the Soviet bloc was still intact, there was a system, an organized system uh, to get refugees out of the Eastern Bloc and into other countries that were accepting these families and individuals, U.S., Canada, Australia, South Africa, being some of these countries. And we registered our interest for the U.S. I had an uncle in the U.S. One of my dad's brothers was a doctor already here. But really what made it happen is a church out of Columbus, Ohio, the Upper Arlington Lutheran Church, which was a significant part of the local community of Columbus that enabled us to arrive in Columbus, Ohio in December of 83, just a couple of days before Christmas. Wow. But so you actually took asylum and came into this country. That must have been a pretty challenging, especially at such a young age. You went to India, you came back, then you went to the United States And Columbus, Ohio is a little bit different than New Delhi. So how was it taking asylum and then moving to Columbus, Ohio? Tell us about that. Sure. Both from New Delhi to Budapest in 73, when I was nine, was a huge culture shock. And a similar culture shock awaited me nine years later when I moved from Budapest to Columbus, Ohio. So in some way, I think that's one of the lessons that I have learned that you don't know what's going to hit you. And to be adaptable and resilient and accepting of change as you go along, because you don't know what you may accept. When we fled Hungary, we had no idea we would arrive in Columbus in such uh, loving hands. And I could say that God was looking after us in some way that I landed in Columbus. And the local newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch, ran an article about the family Columbus was a big place, but not that big and not that many refugees at the time. And the church was an influential part of the local community. So they put a very nice picture. And about me, they said that I was a champion Hungarian fencer. And at the time, Hungarian fencing was and still remains to be on top of the world. And that was actually true. And I think the second drawing of God that I saw here is that the fencing coach that the Ohio State University was a Hungarian lady who read this article in the dispatch, tracked me down literally a couple of weeks later, knocked on, on our door, this little house that the church had rented for us, January 2nd, and said, knocked on the door. I happened to open the door, and she, in her heavy Hungarian accent, said, are you Sunil? And I said, yes, I am. She goes, you come with me to Ohio State now. So she grabbed my hands and we went to Ohio State. And I got enrolled there. They were on a quarterly system. So in January, I could start the quarter. 
Indeed, a few weeks later, I went on, became second at Junior Olympics. I won the Big Ten. I became an NCAA All-American, all within a scope of three months. So within three months of arrival in the U.S., I was in university and I was a well-recognized student athlete on the Ohio State campus. Wow. From refugee to fencing champion, being in the newspaper, that's a pretty amazing story. And as you said, the resilience, Sunil, of adapting to change, that has probably helped you in your career. And I think that's one of the key defining things that is needed for success. But were you fencing already in Hungary that you became so successful here? Yes, I was indeed. When, I, when we arrived in Budapest, my mom's two boys, mm-hmm. and she said, I can take care of you guys all day. And she looked for the nearest sports facility where we lived, which was a fencing club. And she walked me in there at the age of nine. So there was no science or methodology here, just the most convenient alternative for my mom. And I just got stuck there. And it turned out to be a good one. Fencing is one of the very few Olympic sports, by the way, that has been at every single Olympics. Since 1896 to today, there are only five sports which have been in every single summer games, fencing being one of them. So it has an ancient history. A lot of people refer to it as physical chess because before you make a move, whether it's forward or backward, yet you have to think, and then you have to think what your opponent's going to do. You have to hit him before you get hit. It's very complex, very complicated. It fit my interests. And so it was a match, but again, very lucky. That's amazing. But tell me, you have continued even after playing. Now you're involved in the game in a more in an administrative role also in some key organizations too, right, Sunil? Absolutely. So I stopped competitive fencing at the age of 30, so a good 20 years of elite international competitive fencing. And then I became an international referee on behalf of the U.S. So I first fenced for Hungary as a young junior fencer. But by the time I was a referee age, I was an American. So I refereed at World Championships and World Cups around the world. And then I decided to get involved in a volunteer sense in the leadership of the sport. I served as a treasurer of USA Fencing I was on the board of USA Fencing, and then I was asked to represent the U.S. on the board of the International Fencing Federation, FIE, Fédération Internationale d'Escrime, in French. The language of fencing is French. We continue to referee in fencing in the French language. And so that was my first step into sports diplomacy. And in some way, I built a second career on that. I have never really made any money on sports, but from the FIE and the International Fencing Federation, I was then asked to join another organization called the International Fair Play Committee that was created in 63 and unique in the sense that it is the only organization that sits both within the UN system as a part of UNESCO and the Olympic system because it's an IOC recognized organization. And it rewards and recognizes great acts of sportsmanship and has been doing it for 60 years now. I'm, I was on the board there. I was treasurer. Everybody likes my money-raising skills. But then now I'm the secretary general, the number two of that organization. And I guess if I may, I could add two more legs of the sports part. One is I have been involved with the International Olympic Committee's Sustainability Commission for almost 20 years. 
I was when Juan Antonio Samaranch, the then president of the IOC, created in a very visionary sense back in the late 90s, an environment commission. Think about it today, sustainability legacy, everybody uses them. But this is 25 years ago. He created a sports and environment commission, made a Hungarian champion, Paul Schmidt, as president of that, who then asked me to raise some money for it. And I happened to know someone at Shell Oil who became the first sponsor of the IOC Environment Commission. That's how I got involved. Since then, the commission is now being chaired by Prince Albert of Monaco. And as you know, he's really a big promoter of sustainability and environmental matters, I would say, next to sports. That's his other major area of interest. And through that, I have, of course, saw the development of the Olympics impact on the games and how influential it can be in bringing sustainability to cities, whether it's Beijing changing its buses, whether it's Italy adapting regulations to require environmental impact assessments on new builds. So that's been a very interesting second career, as I mentioned before. And currently, I have the honor of serving the International Federation for Track and Field or Athletics, as they call it in other parts of the world. It's called World Athletics. So this is the sport that governs the global sport of track and field. The president is Lord Sebastian Coe, and there's a small executive board that helps him on the business side of things. And I'm one of those guys. And it's really an honor to be surrounded by people like with Lord Coe and helping the original Olympic sport continue. Amazing. So you, as you said, built a second career in sports. Sunil, you kind of alluded, do you think fencing or maybe some of these things have also helped you from a business standpoint? As you said, it's the chess of physical part. I mean, you have to strategize and things like that because trying to figure out success, sports is, as many people say, that you learn team activity, participating in groups, leadership, et cetera. Has that helped you in any way? Oh, absolutely. I think the two go hand in hand. Sports teaches you so many useful things in life. Never give up, never look back, focus on the positive, keep going, perseverance, stamina, all of those things have contributed, keeping lots of things in the air, lots of balls in the air, and also time scheduling time-wise, so you have a lot less time to waste on things when you are going from one thing to another. So all of these things have benefited my business life. I've always done a few things at the same time. Now, of course, I'm not in a full-time job at this point, but holding a number of board positions and a couple of advisory seats. So again, having half a dozen things being juggled at the same time. And I think that the ability to do that really comes from a dedication to organized activity from a young level, whether in my case, it was sports, but of course, it could be music and drama and other things. So being able to juggle multiple things, being competitive, I think those are some of the things that you learn. From a professional standpoint, Sunil, you built a very illustrious career in fintech, but also in the public sector. Just talk a little bit about that and how have you managed the commercial and also in the public sector, so to speak, the IMF and things of that nature. So again, one thing led to another. After my degree, I was in telecom, but quickly gravitated towards finance, basically financing telecoms, satellite equipments, 
And again, a little bit, the East uh, geopolitics came into play in early to mid-90s when the Soviet bloc fell apart. And I found myself at Coopers and Librand helping foreign investors interested in Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe, with investment, an area that was closed off for 50 years or so. And I was fortunate to be picked up by development bank that was created at the time, the EBRD, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, analogous to the ADB or the IDB in other regions, and as one of the first employees and helped invest in private equity funds, helped invest in privatized banks. One of the banks we invested in as EBRD, our partner was GE Capital, who were then going in Europe. And GE then asked me to join, and I was one of the first people with them on the ground in London, building out GE Equity, the private equity business of GE Capital, where I was given a completely unknown company with no revenues called Euronet. Said, Sunil, take a look. They want to do ATMs in Eastern Europe. Whoever heard of that? They didn't have any ATMs. They want to do cross-border payments into this region where before no dollars were flowing legally. And I seed funded on behalf of GE with $5 million, 5%. Of course, together with the GE team, this company, which became a mega billion dollar business. And on the back of this and another investment actually in South Africa, in an ATM management software company called Mosaic, which is today part of ACI, again, a big payments company, people thought I knew something about payments. And I got recruited to First Data Western Union, again, at the time, the largest payments company in the world, the largest remittances company still today, the largest what we call merchant acquirer, which takes and accepts credit cards payment by the merchants. And thirdly, gets a little technical here, the largest issuer processor at the time, issuer processors work for banks and issue their cards, do all the accounting and all that so for the big banks. And so I sat on the top of these three big pyramids Everybody in payments came and talked to me either to be bought or to be invested in. And this was for the international side. I was then based in Paris, so moved from London to Paris. And that in and of itself, of course, is a very nice personal experience and having the family there and having that experience. And, and really, when those two companies split into two, one got acquired by KR, the other one went public, is when I went out on my own and decided to make Washington, D.C. our home simply because we wanted to move back as a family to the U.S. Couldn't quite go back to Los Angeles, where my mom was, because my lot of business was in Europe. And we settled on D.C. And once you arrive in D.C., you really can't avoid the politics. You are also a testament of that, that it's all around you. And I decided to get involved with the Obama campaign. And that then has led to an approach from the White House following his election, if I would be interested in serving the country. And you've done amazing from fintech to serving on IMF board. Sunil, somebody could argue that you were in the right place at the right time, but trying to decipher, were there things that you did that kind of positioned you in those places? You were with some amazing companies. You were in Paris. People would give their right arm to do that. But for somebody who wants to achieve those successes, what is the key to be in those kinds of positions? Yeah. So, yes, there's a right person, right time, 
So you had right person, right place, right time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you need a combination of those, of course. What has worked for me and as advice that I could give is keeping your contacts and networks live and current. And that's not that easy to do. It's, or it's very easy to, of course, mark someone as a LinkedIn, especially in today's world, or as a Facebook friend or follow on Twitter. But to make a conscious effort to seek out people regularly, I can practically go to any city and find a person that I will have some relationship with. When I'll go to Los Angeles later this week, I have half a dozen people that I always make contact with for the last 20 years, maybe more, that I'm here. Whether we meet or not, I can go back to Warsaw to the guy that worked for me at GE Capital more than 30 years ago, and we're working on something together now because we kept in touch. Same, the guy at First Data, he now works for Ubisoft in Paris, had a business development. Again, I go back. So keeping those relationships, making people feel that you weren't in touch with them because of their job or position, but there is a personal interest is what I think reciprocates then itself by people seeking you out with ideas, opportunities. And that is probably that kind of genuine networking I can give as an advice to folks. I hope a lot of people are listening because what Sunil just has said is very critical. Relationships, staying in touch, even when you don't have anything with them. Most people think of it as a transaction, but I can attest to what Sunil is saying is, I think, excellent point, Sunil. The world of fintech has changed in the past couple of years, especially we've seen the rise and now maybe some changes in there. What is your thought in terms of what's happened in the crypto world, so to speak, Sunil? Well, a lot of changes uh, happening, right? Firstly, you can think of Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies, let's say the rise of blockchain technology and its first application being cryptocurrencies. And I was always quite skeptical of that. I didn't feel sufficiently safe or secure. Maybe my conservative approach to things. I really never got involved with cryptocurrency trading speculation, although lots of people have made lots of money, of course. And that, of course, we ended up for now in crypto winter. The technology itself, though, DLT is here to stay and will impact a number of industries in a positive way. I can, for instance, tell you that I've always thought and I said this even more than five years ago, that for instance, for foreign aid, if you think how many trillions of dollars are going out to foreign aid and how much is being wasted in terms of friction, whether it's intermediary costs and corruption in just inefficient distribution channels. Now, again, if you could put a blockchain application to it and track every single dollar that the U.S. would have sent to Afghanistan to the farmers, and it would be on the blockchain today, there'd be some really interesting lessons to be learned and perhaps corrected or adjusted. So blockchain technology, I feel, is here to stay, and a number of new applications will come. In terms of currencies, 
We've seen, of course, the stable coins, a derivative of crypto, but when well-regulated, potentially quite interesting. And some examples show an enormous product market fit, the growth of certain cryptocurrencies. And the third layer of that is, of course, CBDCs, central bank-issued digital currencies. And today, about 150 central banks are doing some kind of pilot on CBDCs. And that's where actually my fintech world and my IMF world come harmoniously together. And because that's really an area that I have been following, going back to my days together with Christine Lagarde at the IMF board, as well as today, quite actively looking at opportunities there. No, I think you make a very interesting point in terms of the technology is here to stay, whether crypto goes up or down. But I think what you're talking about is the waste that can be avoided through this decentralized banking kind of technology that we have, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, or any of these aid programs. I mean, we give tens and tens of billions of dollars. So I think those are very interesting thoughts, Sunil. In your journey, it must not have been all just, hey, get on this committee and all great successes. There must have been some challenges along the way, some setbacks. Tell us a little bit about that. And has your background, your Indianness, your having to move around, has that helped you in any way? I think you encounter challenges everywhere, every step, whether it's in sports or family or your work. At First Data Western Union, in the few years, three, four years I was there, I had several different bosses because they get removed and organized. And these things are not in your control. So you try and focus on the things you can affect. And that is one advice that you cannot worry about things you cannot affect because if you worry about it and you still get affected by them. So I would say just focus on things and look forward. So don't look back, look forward and look for the next solution. And there, I think being Indian, Indianness really helps because I think of India as a tough place to live. And regardless of, let's say, your social strata, because it's very competitive. So even if you are owners of enterprises, it's still one of the most competitive business environments. It is the climate has a challenge for you. And now pollution in certain big cities, for instance, in Delhi, where I come from, it's crowded all the time. So just to get ahead, whether it's in a car or whether you're staying in a queue somewhere, I believe that kind of environment prepares you for the toughness and maybe thick skin that you're ready to face the world. And those things have definitely helped me with that. As you said, being competitive, having to push and get ahead amongst a lot of people, et cetera, has been helpful. And that's some of the things we hear from a lot of our guests. You've done a, some amazing, interesting things. Where do you see this journey going forward for you with everything that you know and what you're doing? I'd like to see if I can contribute to the world being more ready for future challenges. And let me step back a little bit here. If we were in the 50s, when the bulk of the UN organizations were created, for instance, they created an organization, for instance, agriculture, that would have been one of the biggest GDP contributors sector in the world. Today, 
agriculture of the U.S. GDP is less than 1%, technology is 10%. But of global GDP, of course, technology is a much, much bigger percent. So if we were to create a UN system today, there would be UN for technology, a UN agency for technology. But for some reason, we're unable to do anything like that. And really important aspects of the economy today, just think of social media and the impact it's had on people, both positive, but also negative uh, mental health issues in terms of concentration. And you see this something similar happening with AI. That is the talk of today, generative AI today. And you are, of course, an expert in this field. But again, I find the world and its institutions completely unprepared for this. And I think that a collective group of leaders from government, international organizations, academicians, and of course, the corporate would have to come together and say, the next 20 years is not going to be the same as the last 20 years. And what are the things we need to do? And again, think of it, we're creating the UN today. What is it that we don't have that we need to create? Or what is that? Is there an institution today that could be altered or not? Or we need some new institutions. And I'd really like to add in that dialogue. And I'm trying in my own way, I continue the discussions at the U.S. government, with international institutions, and anywhere else. So making a difference in the world we live in and the world we are leaving behind for our children with the changes that are coming at us at such a fast speed is what you're saying. That's what you want to be involved in the future. This old age, I'm not going to be a fencing champion anymore. <laughs> I could Maybe with AI robotics, you never know, Sunil, with generative AI and robotics, you never know. Yeah, exactly. And they started now, there's veterans fencing, people yeah. over 50, 70 fence, which didn't used to be the case. Absolutely. What would be the advice that you would give your younger self? If you go back, you're pretty young, but let's just say 20 years ago or something like that, what would be that advice? I would say follow your dream to its fullest and always look forward. Okay. Follow your dream to the fullest and look forward. Don't look back. But that's a pretty good message, especially for the young people. And in the Indian context, and the emphasis is on your dream, because in the Indian context, of course, all our parents want us to be doctors and lawyers and engineers and not fencing experts that I can tell you, they didn't cross the box of fencing <laughs> experts for sure. And so if you find something at a young age that really, really interests you, just pursue that because ultimately that's where you're going to be best at and excel in. And in every field, you could be the number one, number two in the world, right? So just keep going at it. And that's what I mean by follow your dream. That's a good message for everybody. Soon we do a little bit of a lightning round here, just short questions to find out a little bit about your view. And the first one is, what is your view of what is Indianness? Indianness. So I think it's being tough, ready to face everyone and anything. That's my view. My name is fully Indian. I'm always compared to by older generations to Raj Kapoor. So that is true. People, younger people don't know, and the younger, younger know even less, but I'm never allowed to forget that every time I step foot in India. 
That's a big compliment, though. I think the only comparison Raj Kapoor and I have is that we both love Charlie Chaplin. But I think Indianness is being prepared for the world because, again, you come out from a, a rough, tough environment. And if you're coming out of a one and a half billion people succeeding, you can do it all in the world. Do it all in the world. Rough, tough. That's good to hear. Sunil, if I were to ask you, which one person, whether it's Indian American or of Indian origin, would be an inspiration or someone that you look up to? Who would that person be? It happens to be quite topical, and it's Ajay Banga, the incoming, Bank. Uh, incoming president to the World Bank, a former CEO for MasterCard. I have had the pleasure and the honor to have known him for several years now. We come from the same industry, but beyond that, we've been able to spend some more personal time with each other and the way he transformed a global organization, American organization, as an Indian. He's really an, he is born and raised and grew up and professionalized in India. And to be able to do that and the vision, I don't know how much you or the listeners know about what he's done at MasterCard, but he started a whole financial inclusion program working with governments where he went to governments and said, don't worry about cards. Let's figure out what your country needs to have better financial infrastructure, more people in the digital financial payment ecosystem. And he's done that one by one in dozens and dozens of countries. And I believe he, with that mentality, he is going to have a shot at reforming the the international financial institutions system and contribute to the betterment of the world. So that is certainly one person that I know and view as as in high regard. So Ajay Banga, that's a pretty good choice. A lighthearted one, favorite Indian food, Sunil? Tandoori. The red clay tandoori. (laughs) Red clay tandoori, okay. But love the bindi, love the, love every, yeah, I could eat Indian every day. I love spicy food. Great. Sunil, thank you so much for taking the time for us and our listeners. Well, you had an amazing story. Obviously, one message is never get in your crosshairs because you never know where a fencing jab will come at you. But thank you so much for taking the time. So thank you. Thanks, Sanjay. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.